Let's Pastor give it up for Pastor Josh, everybody. Boom, boom, boom. When he asked me about this, I was like, yeah, great, because, you know, you don't want to do the thing, like, you don't want to get in the way and have everybody change course for just for you to show up and preach. So I said, yeah, whatever, and then the more I'm happy to do anything you got, and then I, the more I read it, I was like, so, so this is a hard one. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Sean. Um, but I love Scripture. Um, one of the things I love about Scripture is that it's, there's so much narrative, there's so much story. Because I think that the more we get into the God story, we recognize that the story in these pages is much like the one in our lives now. The more we see the world of the Bible, the more we see God in our world now. And um, we start to recognize that these ordinary people serve an extraordinary God. I saw that on the door out there. And then God, who's extraordinary, does extraordinary things through those ordinary people. They have good intentions, these people, but they fail. They lose their tempers. They get distracted. They get forgetful. They hardly ever live consistently or faithfully. But through God's gracious and loving care, he works redemptive purpose into their lives. They change and grow because they follow God. Scripture is filled with stories of God loving people into maturity and loving people into wisdom and lovingly teaching us how to be loving. You can look at the Old Testament. We can look at the scriptures of the Hebrew and the Jewish people and see a story arc over hundreds of years. It's like a saga of God forming salvation life into Hebrew people over generations. And that saga leads to the Gospels, which are constructed around Jesus inviting people to follow him, walk with him, learn from him for up to three years as he walks around Palestine. There's lots of story. The epistles, not so much on the story, more on the lessons and doctrine, which means we have some gaps in the storyline. There's a lot to figure out. And if we're going to understand what the, the epistles, what the letters mean for us, we have to understand something of what they meant. We have to try to reconstruct the story and the situation. Most of the time, the letters are written to clarify or correct what Jesus means in our everyday life. And as we read, we see how Jesus' teaching shaped the lives of these apostles, these letter writers, as they planted these churches. And today, we're going to talk about forgiveness and forgiving people, which is the hard part. Thanks, Sean. The Corinthians, this group of Jesus followers, are an excellent example of God loving messed up people in community, loving them into maturity and wisdom. And we got the great thing is we don't see like a completed work. We see like right in the middle of it all, like the rest of us, right in the middle of God working through us. Oh, bye, pal. We appreciate you being here. What's his name? Dallas. Like Dallas Willard? Dallas, Texas, not Dallas Cowboys. <laughs> I love it. Mother Teresa said something really interesting at one point. She said, if we want to learn how to love, then we have to learn to forgive. There's a connection. And the Corinthian letters indicate a people who are messing up what they're supposed to be learning. And Paul, as their pastor, is helping them understand how redemption works in real-life situations. They must learn to forgive. And I want to stop briefly because this is a difficult subject. We're not talking as much about God forgiving us as much as we're talking about forgiving each other. And that just gets tricky 
If you come from an abusive place, if you come from cycles where you're mistreated over and over, sometimes we use forgiveness to, for, to realize that, to, to teach us like we're not supposed to have boundaries, we're not supposed to take care of ourselves, we're just supposed to forgive, and I am not advocating that today. Implied in this scripture is lots of boundary. It's lots of community, care, community caring for each other. And there are situations that you need to get out of. And I just wanna say up front before we get into it, I am not advocating allowing an, uh, abuse to continue in your life. Can I say that? Is that okay? As we try to reconstruct the story of God forming this people in Corinth, we can re rebuild some parts of the story a little bit better than others. The first half of today's passage is challenging because we just don't have the full story. We read, if anyone has caused grief, he's not so much grieved me as he's grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will, be, he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Who's him? What did him do? We don't know. Paul wrote a letter to people who had inside information. They knew what he's talking about. Paul chose not to rehash, not to dig up the offense, not to retell the story of what was done. And as modern readers, we're outsiders to the situation. We just don't have the story. Every commentary, every scholar in history has had to make an educated guess. We don't know. But I think that that's beautiful, that we don't get to know what happened. Because what happened is not the salient detail of this message, of this lesson. The important question is whether or not the community will participate in this man's redemption. Forgiveness is about participating, participating with God in redemption. And those of us who need an explanation, do you ever play tic-tac-toe and then you walk away from the game, there's no final X, no third line, and you just go nuts? You just need satisfaction? Well, something's undone and just has to be, that's me. We're not going to get satisfaction in this story. We're not going to fill in those gaps. And it's important to consider. I'm all for communication and clarification, but sometimes I can let explanations and clarifications and getting the whole story provide satisfaction for me before I'll forgive. It's like I'm trying to discern whether the offense was a misunderstanding I can explain away or minimize. And then I deliberate and adjudicate the situation from a place of power. I'm in charge over the offender. I sit at the judge's bench. I'm no longer the victim. I'm no longer wounded and weak. I feel powerful over. Maybe I'll just wait until that person is sorry enough. Maybe I'll wait to hear enough groveling. And maybe I'm just withholding forgiveness until I am satisfied. Anybody? Doesn't that mean that we tend to put conditions on our forgiveness? We'll come back. Let's look at the rest of the passage. I urge you, brothers, I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Let's call him John. Another reason I wrote to you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. Anything you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. In this section, Paul's implying as Christians, as people who follow Jesus, being formed by his teaching and guided by his spirit, if you call yourself a student of Jesus, I urge you to reaffirm your love for this person who has failed you. But here's the heart of the lesson. 
Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. Doesn't that sound like Jesus? Anything you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Or maybe in John, where it's a little more on the nose. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. John 20, 23. That's what Jesus taught. And here's what Paul is teaching. The passages of Jesus is essential in understanding 2 Corinthians 2, but it's also foundational for becoming Christ-like. If you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven. If you retain them, they're retained. We talked about how the apostles are really founding their churches on the teaching of Jesus. And here Paul is instructing the Corinthians to lead the way in forgiveness. If you forgive this man and participate in his redemption as you're supposed to, as Jesus' student, then I also forgive him. And he goes on and he says, what I've forgiven, if there's any offense, I have forgiven. The Greek says, dihumas en prospero Christu. Literally, it's for you in face of Christ. And different translations make one of two choices here. It can mean in light of what Christ has done, because of what he has forgiven. And it can mean because he's watching me as I follow his example. Both translations work. Both are true. But really what Paul is getting at here is this. Forgiven people forgive people. In light of what Christ has given me, and because I'm a student of his way of being, I live forgiven and I forgive freely. No conditions, no satisfaction. But clearly it's not as easy as it sounds. I mean, Paul had to write this letter to correct them because they weren't doing it, right? If you forgive, I also forgive as Christ has forgiven. You've punished enough, guys. It's time to forgive. There's this great chain of forgiveness, and we all participate in it. Why? Because in the Jesus way, forgiven people forgive people. Paul's instruction is very clearly derived from Jesus' teachings. It's like this trickle-down forgiveness, and it's a crucial component of Jesus' discipleship curriculum. This is textbook Jesus. Have you ever thought about it? We all know that God forgives our sin. That's a given in Christian faith. But did you know Jesus connects God's forgiveness of us with our forgiving others? Briefly, we're going to look at two passages in the Gospel of Matthew. The first is Jesus teaching on prayer, and the second is a parable. When Jesus taught his followers to pray, he said, pray this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not in temptation, temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And then he said, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your father will not forgive yours. Whoa. Forgiveness is the centerpiece of the Lord's Prayer. Have you ever seen that? The prayer that Jesus taught us to pray hinges on forgiveness. It's, not as, it's as much about forgiving others as it's about receiving forgiveness from God. Forgive as we forgive. It's not just vertical. It's also horizontal. Did you notice the first thing that Jesus says after the prayer? Anytime a pastor says something that we want listeners to hear, we restate it. You do this? Does he do this? Does he say the same thing over and over till you hear him? One of my favorites is uh, Bishop uh, Kenneth Ulmer. 
Uh, he's this African-American preacher, and he came and spoke in Nashville at a convention a few years ago, and he'd stomp this, like, size 15 shoe down, and he'd say it again, and he'd say it again, and he'd say it again, and it's like it got in your soul. Preachers restate things to get it in your soul. Jesus did it, too. What did he restate? For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive yours. Whoa, that seems pretty conditional, Jesus. It's pretty quid pro quo, Lord. If I forgive, then I'll be forgiven. If I don't forgive, then I won't be forgiven. Do we really need to forgive God before, forgive others before God will forgive us? It seems like the passage is saying that. And on the other hand, from the cross, with no repentance at all, Jesus looks down and says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So how do we think about these two things? It's a paradox. Jesus' statement from the cross is final, and it tells us that God does not need us to initiate forgiveness before he can forgive. From the beginning, God has been redeeming and repairing all the ways that we distrust him and we hurt others and the world he loves. Jesus does not need us to take the first step in forgiveness for God's sake. But the Lord's Prayer would teach us that we have to learn forgiveness as we're forgiven for our sake. We have to accept, accept forgiveness and embrace the reality that we are forgiven people before forgiveness really changes us. And Jesus knew this. That's why he restated it. It's also why he returns to the idea in Matthew 18 in the parable of the unforgiving servant. You probably know this one too. Peter, you remember, you know, Peter, he always thinks he's awesome. Lord, should I forgive seven times? No, Peter, not seven, but 70 times seven. And then Jesus taught this parable about a servant who was forgiven much. It goes like this. A servant owed millions, a lifetime of debt. And when he, brought, he was brought to court to answer for what he owed, he pleaded for mercy to avoid debtor's prison. The king granted incredible forgiveness. You're not going to prison. And you know what? More than that, you don't owe anything anymore. You're free. Wow. But then that same servant went out and found someone who owed him like a thousand bucks and mercilessly threw him, the one who owed a little bit, into prison. It's not nothing. It's a thousand bucks, but millions, man, forgiven millions. And the king, very, very furious by this thing, he had shown mercy and he's returned with this kind of ingratitude and contemptuous heart. He says, how can you have received such immense forgiveness and not forgive a little? Then the parable says, Jesus, uh, the king handed him over to be tortured until he could repay the entire debt. Jesus turned to his students and said, so my heavenly father will also do to you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. We're gonna unpack this, but what we need to know right up front is forgiveness is very serious business. And unforgiveness, or what I'm gonna call contempt, is toxic to our soul. The servant who was forgiven a lifetime of debt didn't let forgiveness sink in. He didn't let it change his transactual and contemptuous heart, and it showed. If he let forgiveness change him, he would have lived by the grace he'd received. He'd be, he wouldn't be looking to collect. He'd be looking to forgive. But he didn't take the time to reflect on the mercy shown to him. He didn't take time to let the grace teach him 
He just moved on to get his money back, to collect and gain and acquire. I think sometimes maybe we go to God and we pray and we feel better for what we've done. But instead of taking time to reflect on what God's grace and mercy has afforded us, we just move on to collect and acquire the next thing. But forgiven people forgive people. That's the same lesson Jesus wants to learn in the, us to learn in the parable. It's the thing that we learn to pray so that it becomes who we are, a forgiven person who forgives people. Jesus wants to teach us that forgiveness has to be received before it can restore. You can offer me a gift over and over. Josh, here's the keys to my truck. If you want to. Here's a million dollars. Here's a Bible. But until we receive it and use it and let it change us, no use. Forgiveness is given to us as a gift. But if we don't receive the gift of forgiveness, then God's grace can't work forgiveness and we don't live forgiven. I'm gonna tell a story of some friends of mine um, know that this is very personal and painful to me. Uh, Jesus' life and forgiveness and grace is very real in our real, everyday, actual lives. He's still doing stuff. Especially when it's hard. So I don't say this lightly. And I'm going to leave out details because I don't want anybody who might know me trying to guess anything about these people. About, well, more than 10 years ago, I was blessed with this really large, tight-knit group of friends. And in a single year, there were four affairs involving 12 of my closest friends. And it was a terrible time walking through the fallout from these decisions with folks that I loved very much. One of the situations has become a living parable for me, something that teaches me to really consider forgiveness and contempt. And when the situation came out, this, this one left a wake of pain and relational havoc unlike the rest. It really hurt the families, it hurt the friends, it also hurt a church community that we really loved. The married couples involved were best friends. It wasn't a one-time mistake, it was, uh, it was very ugly. When the two people in the affair came clean, the guy moved away with his family and they started down this very long road of reconciliation with the wife and kids. He sought enormous amounts of therapy and he worked menial labor and he lived a truly repentant life. And over the years, I've seen God work mercy and grace into this man and into his family as they begin their journey of forgiveness. Eventually, after years, he was restored, really more than restored, he was transformed. Now as I see him, he's humble and gracious and patient and loving more than he ever was before. He let forgiveness change him, and it's clear because the family and him, they live freer before, than before it happened. He's free. Something about forgiveness in the situation changed him fundamentally, and he lives that way. 
The other man in the situation, the one whose wife was involved in the affair, he, he couldn't forgive. I don't blame him. I can't imagine the pain, but it's true. He would try, but he couldn't let go. He held his wife and his former friend in contempt like a prison of his own heart and mind, and he began to lash out in vengeance as if with vengeance he might get satisfaction from his place of power. There were moments where I thought he might make it, but he just couldn't. And the thing about it is this guy had been a Christian all his life. He, he was a magnanimous and gracious person. He was bigger than life. I had never met someone so warm and so much uh, love for other people. From the time I met him, I just felt loved by him. But in his contempt over the years, he was changed. He was smaller. He's almost distorted. He's not at all free. He's not at all magnanimous. He couldn't reconcile it. He couldn't reconcile with his wife or his friend or anyone who remained friends with either of them. And while the affair wasn't his fault, he didn't choose this, his hardened heart contributed to the loss of his marriage, turning his kids away. His anger turned into uncontrolled rage, and he became bitter. And the more bitter he became, the smaller his love and the smaller his presence. We would try to reconnect, and he would cry as he talked about how his life had gone. And I would see traces of his heart, and, I, and the person I knew, and it was heartbreaking. But in his contempt, in his unforgiveness, he ended up defensive and violent and addicted and eventually in jail. He was as imprisoned in his external life as he was in his heart and spirit. And it's tragic. Every time I think of him, I, I continue to pray for him to receive God's mercy and grace that's freely offered every moment of his life. His story reminds me of a quote by uh, Nelson Mandela. You know him, apartheid, imprisoned. He says, resentment is like drinking poison and then hoping it will kill your enemies. Resentment is like drinking poison and hoping it will kill your enemies. And here, between 2 Corinthians passage and the Lord's Prayer and these two parables of unforgiving people, we can bring it all together. If you forgive sins, they are forgiven. If you retain sins, they are retained. Forgiveness in the Gospels is afiemi. It means let go, permit, release. And that's a very hard thing to do, to release someone from the penitentiary of our minds and hearts. But it's what Jesus asks of us and what Paul obliges of the Corinthians. A good way to understand forgiveness in the Gospels is to relinquish my right to punish. To live as a forgiven person is to accept that God has relinquished his right to punish. God has let go. God has freed us and released us from the prison of sin and death to live a full and holy life in his kingdom. Forgiveness is central to Jesus' teaching on prayer because praying like this teaches us to live in the flow, in the current of what God is doing. And what God is always doing is setting people free by the power of his love and forgiveness. The lesson Paul is teaching the Corinthians and what Jesus wants his students to know is the same. Receiving and giving forgiveness is the flow. It's a current. I love rivers. I'm going one today in Idaho. I'm gonna go fly fish. I love rivers because they continue to move. There's a momentum and you get swept up in them. I call the flow of God's forgiveness streams of forgiveness because a little bit of forgiveness trickles down into greater forgiveness. 
In the same way that drops of water collect until they become a stream and flow in a creek and form a river, the forgiveness collects and grows and gains momentum as it reconciles broken people to the family of God. And over time, as we live in this flow, it changes us. Like stones in the flowing stream, forgiveness gently and steadily over time smooths us out. We don't fight the flow. We live in it, and it transforms us. But if we choose not to forgive, if we retain sins, if we hold another person in contempt, if we sit in the seat of judgment and power over another, we hold them in contempt. If we demand satisfaction, we hold them in contempt. If we punish, we hold that person in contempt. Contempt is like a dam, and dams retain water. They stop the flow, and the streams of, and rivers of forgiveness cannot flow if we dam up our hearts. If we choose not to receive or if we withhold forgiveness, I call these obstructions dams of contempt because they slow the free-flowing forbearance that God offers us. Dams of contempt. And make no mistake, that which dams up the stream of forgiveness is damning to the soul. This is clear in Jesus' parable of the unforgiving servant and in the life of my beloved friend. Paul tells the Corinthians to forgive, and we don't know what happened. But what we do know is that forgiveness is always God's way. God initiated streams of the forgiveness from the beginning, all the way back to Eden when he covered Adam and Eve with the animal skins. God has always made a way in the desert and brought up streams in the wasteland. His forgiveness flows even where we can't imagine it would. But we don't benefit from forgiveness, forgiveness until we can accept it with repentant heart and let it flow through us. We don't benefit from what God offers until we accept it and let it flow through us. That's really what Paul is getting at in the final verse of this passage where he says, forgive in the face of Christ in order that Satan might not outwit us for we are not unaware of his schemes. Satan's scheming is making you buy into the condemning story. It's making you buy into the resentful and bitter narrative. But the story of your life is the same as the stories in Scripture. You belong to Jesus. And God is forming redemption life in you. He's forming maturity and wisdom and love in you that you would be like him, that you would set other people free. That means we live in love as Jesus did. It means that we dance in the streams of forgiveness and we play in the pools of mercy. Sometimes we think, I can accept God's forgiveness, but I can't forgive. Not that. Not that. Not that thing that happened that hurt so bad. I can forgive, but not her. Jesus' teaching and Paul's instructions would redirect us. If we feel that's the case, we don't understand and we haven't yet received forgiveness because the streams of forgiveness are the healing waters of God. When, we for, when forgiveness flows and we accept, it heals and changes us. 
and we pray, let it flow through me, and we get caught up in the current of God's love, and we know from the depth of our soul, forgiven people, forgive people. Let God's mercy that I've received a lifetime of debt, let it flow through me. Let God's love flow through me to my enemy and my neighbor. We can't love God whose ways are not like our ways and whose words are not like our words if we can't love people who are different from us. Let forgiveness flow. Let me tear down the dams of my contempt and join in the current of reconciliation. Let it flow, let it flow, let it flow. Amen. Let's pray. I believe that prayer comes from our actual lived experience and our daily life. I believe that God wants to be involved in every moment on Tuesday as he is in this hour on Sunday. And so that means we live with reflection and care and meditation of what God is saying to us and we let it change and form and affect us. And so I wanna ask you a couple of questions and just sit with you and let you reflect, okay? Ask yourself this. Is there anywhere in my heart, in my mind, in my soul, where I am holding someone in contempt, where I'm sitting in the seat of judgment, waiting for satisfaction, and I can't forgive, I won't forgive, I can't do it. Your hands are clenched, your knuckles are white. Do you hold someone in contempt? Maybe it's you. Maybe it's somebody you love very much and is in your life every day. Do you hold someone in contempt? I believe God invites us, he doesn't compel us, he draws us, he doesn't push us. And so, I'm gonna leave it to you to ask the Lord in this moment right now. Jesus, how do I permit? How do I release? How do I forgive this? I don't know how to do it. How do I do it? When you look in the mirror, where do you hold yourself in contempt? Where can you not accept the forgiveness of God and live as a forgiven person? Jesus says, students of your way, that means we're learning. 
It means we're not experts. We're decidedly not supposed to be experts. We're learning. Would you teach us what it is to accept forgiveness, to let you reconcile us to yourself and to others? Would you show us how to unlock our heart and our mind to let your mercy and forgiveness flow? Would you continue to heap on us the mercy and the kindness of our repentant life that we would see the weight of our sin, the lifetime of debt lifted from us, that we don't carry it. It is there, but it's pinned to death and a cross. You have lifted forgiveness from us for our sin and shame from us. You have gifted us forgiveness. Let it work. Let it flow. Let it restore your life. And let it flow through you to everyone else. Jesus, we thank you and we praise you in your blessed, kind, loving, gracious name. If you want more information on Hub City Church, find us at thehubcitychurch.com. Thanks for listening.